Take care, everyone. Take care. Welcome to Awake Minute by Minute podcast. This is Minute 45. Today, I'm, as usual, with Chris and Mike. How are you doing, Chris? Good day. Uh, doing very well, thank you. Doing very well. Can Keep you do your best you. Australian impression? Good eye, Mike. Good eye, Mike. Good eye, good eye, yeah. Nice. <laughs> good day to all the Australians listening, yeah. <laughs> How's Mike? I'm good. We had a holiday in the US yesterday, President's Day. I mm. noticed that it's very selectively um, uh, celebrated. So, for example, a lot of people were off work, but my school didn't care about it, for example. <laughs> yeah. Chris, how was energization this morning? I absent, but the meditation was good. I'll say that much. Did you do the quick one? The quick, the quick, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. You can do the quick one even whilst sitting before your meditation. In fact, you should do that anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I should. Yeah. You know which yeah. one I mean? Uh, tensing your whole body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, uh, I've been, I've been working in with my, my workout plan and I got, I slept in this morning and then, you know, <laughs> I, I had a big meditation and energization. Yeah. I really, um, I really, really do feel to make you do intend to make you feel bad. <laughs> so I think I've achieved my mission. <laughs> no, 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 just, uh, motivation, motivation. I, I'm, I'm presuming yours was fantastic. So yeah. <laughs> What was mine like? Yeah, no, it was really good. I had an extra long Hatha yoga session and then energization. Anyway, how are you doing, Mike? Yeah, so um, for the viewers, um, it's morning here. So I've not done my meditation yet. I did a certain preparatory exercise for Kriya and um, no EEs yet, nothing. So. Okay. Um, recording, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, with... Um, with uh, you know how Master Dal told us that we have to you should do gross exercises, I I hatha practices, and then go to more subtle I energization and then even more subtle I kriya. He should he said you should do it in that order. And then um, I thought I'd put that to the test recently because um like I found that some of my hatha practices take like an hour. And like mm. if I'm then doing energization and then I'm doing um my Kriya practices. I'm already like one and a half hours sometimes into my practices before I even start meditating. At which mm. point I'm like, you know, I, I lose <laughs> lose a bit of motivation. Yeah, so yeah. I thought, is this the, really the right order? Um, obviously, me losing motivation is more down to me than how my practices are, my own weaknesses. But um, I thought, is this really? Let me test it. So I tried to switch it around, and for the last like three days, I tried to do my practices for energization and then practices first and then like my stomach was feeling really heavy during meditation because of the previous night's meal obviously I may have ate too much but I didn't think I ate too much but then I noticed that after the hatha yoga that I did my stomach had completely like settled down whatever was going on had completely settled down so then I thought oh that must be uh, Guruji telling me no no Masvidal was right you yeah. do your <laughs> hatha practices beforehand and then and then that's what I did today. So I did a really long session and then my, everything was just feeling really balanced. And then I started my meditation. Mike? No, that's really good. I think he's right. Like it makes sense, but I feel like I always have to prioritize my exercises <laughs> because I'm, 
I'm not always sure I have time for, for everything. So I always put my sadhana first. And even there, sometimes I do the EEs last or something. Because I, that the thing is, I, I, did you ever do this checklist where you say, like, I did this today, I did this today? And I, I like, meditation is like the most important <laughs> one that needs to be ticked off, and then EE, and then if I, and then, yeah, I don't do much yoga like you do, but that would be a cool thing to add. Mm. They, um, was it for the, someone at the center gave a really nice Christmas gift back if you remember once they gave it to all like the volunteers at the center they gave like a check sheet like a book of check sheets for like every day's practices with each with your mm. you know morning and evening energization yeah. you know, etc yeah. etc and um, yeah that's quite a good uh, check sheet. I, I used it for one page and then I didn't use it more than they that. You took it all. <laughs> no, no, more like the opposite. Like the your flaws are like highlighted on paper. There's no, there's no hiding. <laughs> you miss a week and then you just don't want to look look at it again for for shame. <laughs> for for anyone listening, you know, how did you get into the hatha yoga? Because it's not something that you know SRF would actually give too much detail on. If I'm not yeah, and we've discussed in the past why we would imagine Guruji didn't emphasize uh, Hatha in, in our practices. Um, uh, it was, I think it was mostly because he focused a lot of his effort on A, the, the, the Korea techniques and all of that, and, and the you know, public, public speak, you know, public lecture tours, etc. And B, because at the end, when he actually had time, i.e. when he was you know working on his writing the writings he was doing and composing are like epic there's no comparison or no parallel like his commentary on the the Gita and God talks with Arjuna you know I've read countless um, like translations and there's nothing there's no comparison and similarly with um, you know the second coming of Christ these are epic epic works which uh, you know you dilute himself too much if you also focused on but anyway, we're speculating there. Um, but the monk, when I got interviewed for my career, he told me, no, no, you carry on with your Hatha practice, don't drop it. And, and we know that monks also do the Hatha practice. So obviously we should, because you're going to emphasize its importance as well. But how I, sorry, Chris, long-winded answer. <laughs> how I got into it was, um, uh, yeah, there's a, there was a local uh, temple at my set at where I used to live when I was uh, what was I 16, 17. And um, in that temple, they taught, they taught classical Hatha yoga. And um, so it wasn't like a gym. It was actually, you know, there was an invocation prayer and it was a very spiritual practice, Hatha. And, um, and there I kind of dedicated myself to doing it every single day, pretty much for the rest of my life. And it's that's where, so I'm quite fortunate that, um, I learned it through kind of like a spiritually quite grounded or well, foundations of spirituality as opposed to flat abs. Um, and hence I've felt the, um, <laughs> felt the benefit of it and carried it, <laughs> carried it on for my whole life pretty much. Epic. Yeah. Epic, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking to get into some Hatha yoga, but uh... We'll, we'll, we'll be exploring my options and, and I'll try out. I'll do some scientific testing, as mm -hmm. I said, before after meditation, before yeah. meditation. I, um, I'd recommend if you're going to do on the Surya Kriya, which um, Sadhguru teaches, Sadhguru's teachers teach very beautifully. 
Um, yeah, so I used to do something called Surya Namaskar, and then I switched to doing Surya Kriya, which is a slight variation. It's, got, it's, all, it's almost like got Kriya practices embedded into the Surya Namaskar, which everyone knows. So I'd, I'd highly recommend it. It's a very um, powerful process. Um, yes, um, let's talk about minute 45. So minute 45 is really about um, kind of the, the narrators, sorry, the directors talk about a few things, i.e. the civil rights movement um, and uh, the fact that it was really coming, you know, it was take, drawing inspiration, that it drew inspiration from India. And Swami, uh, Brother Chidananda says that people don't realize that Gandhi was, was a yogi and he was implying, you know, applying nonviolence on, on a mass scale. Um, and Stephanie Fine, uh, Simon then says that, um, you know, Yogananda himself was a big supporter of Gandhi and lectured about him at Harvard. Um, Robert Love comes in and says that he was therefore any promoter or any yeah, any supporter of Gandhi meant that he was a person of interest and government watch lists and all that kind of stuff, MI, MI5 or whatever the equivalent exists in, in the USA, uh, Secret Service perhaps, I don't know. Um, Sony, then Warren Sony comes in and says pretty much affirms, affirms that. And then Phil Goldberg comes in uh, and talks about... Uh, you know, who is this? Who is this guy? Are you referring to Yogananda? Why is everyone following him? What's happening? Are they trying to overthrow the government? <clears throat> All that good stuff. So we've got four or five uh, big players in the film. So this is a very good, good, a good minute as it's a reflection of the whole film because uh, it's got some some deep stuff in there. Things like cosmic delusion is always snaring us throughout ignorance then there's beautiful commentaries and then there's you know brother Chidananda there that comes in and gives his two pennies worth so it's got SRFU it's got Yogananda's quote it's got four or five very eminent speakers two of which we've actually interviewed uh, Phil Goldberg and Warren Sawney you can go through those episodes and actually um, I've started especially with the Phil Goldberg episode I've started chapterizing um, videos now so they've got topics so we'll start doing that slowly we'll be able to chapterize all of our videos so then you can click on an element of the video that you may want to watch etc so uh reflections on the minute yeah that, that was my reflection um so we're going to talk about things like the civil rights movement um the independence movement how that how they were linked civil rights in USA, obviously, an independence movement in India, uh, many thousands of miles away, of course. Then we're going to talk about nonviolence and ahimsa and the Gandhian view of the world, Guruji's lecturing at Harvard, the topics he may have covered, and some of the pictures and videos they used, because they used a video of Guruji at a very fancy-looking dinner um, in his latter or final years. Um, Mike? Yeah, it's... Um... When I first um, heard about Gandhi, um, when I grew up, of course I heard it also from my parents, but I feel like the, the Gandhi movie with um, Ben Kingsley kind of drew the picture for me in the beginning. And I don't think it, it drew it perfectly. It didn't show perfectly all the things that were going on and how, I, how, I mean, it show, showed some violence, but not how violent it all was. But um, after reading uh, the autobiography, I kind of 
understood what a what a great man Gandhi himself was and how when Guruji visited him, like he writes a whole chapter about him, right? He talks to him and he visits him and he calls him many times. He calls him a saint. He calls him a great politician. He calls him the liberator of India. And um, he and at, at that point, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think um, uh, India was even um, independent yet, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he was still in the middle of the struggle. And it, it was just showing that um, when India needs an avatar to come and free it, then one will come and he will use methods that are very different than we thought were necessary. And it worked out, which is amazing. And like you said, it later inspired the civil rights movement in the USA. Are you, are you calling Gandhi an avatar, Mike? I mean, if you call, what is, so, so this is like a, a question I can ask you back to you. Right? Um, <laughs> if, if someone is being called a saint, that, that kind of means he's free from the material plane, right? An avatar just means he already came here free. Um, I, I'm not sure, like when I read um, Gandhi's Vita that through his life, he, he um, had to free himself. I feel like he was he always knew what he wanted and he always knew what mission he was on. So that's why I would say that. You're right, but I, I, I didn't read him called like that anywhere. That's true. Mm. Certainly when I, when I think personally, when I think of Gandhi, I think of him in a very elevated state. And I was so thankful that um, Guruji included a whole chapter on him because it kind of confirms your, well, it conf- confirmed my, you know, my elevation of him in my own mind, in my own heart. But because I presume I previously I'd thought because I'm such a patriotic uh, Indian um, and I was a big, you know, Indian history has always been very, very uh, touching to me. So I always thought my affinity to Gandhi was because of that. Um, so I, just, I thought I may be susceptible to, uh, you know, having m- my view of him might be clouded because of that. But because, but Guruji then putting him in the autobiography really, you know, for me it cemented that, uh, that, uh, that for me because, um, yeah, Guruji, if he has Guruji's endorsement, then what, what better endorsement can you have than that of a avatar? Um, yeah. Uh, Mike, do you want to come back? Yeah. Um, this is always something that I, I would never know, right? Like there's a lot of great, great people and um, you, I'm, I'm not in the position to say, oh, this person was a great realized master or not. But if Guruji says, something in this direction then for me it's like the the discussion's over so yeah we're going to talk um heavily about mahatma gandhi in minute 60 when Mm -hmm. uh, when there's videos of him uh, of guruji going to to visit gandhi we'll talk about mahatma gandhi in in significant more detail but today we'll, we'll just focus on um really really what the message was saying what the messages were from the minute so it starts with um gandhi and you know the civil rights movement being inspired by the independence movement. The independence movement, of course, um, was a probably what 150 to 100 year campaign that uh, the Indians, um, the Indians, really embarked upon. Uh, really, it started with the, I'd say, the political or the educated 
elite in, in India, uh, the Indians, not the British, obviously, um, when, when they ruled in the 18 and 19 hundreds. And um, it then slowly became uh, public as in a national movement when everyone got on board, i.e. The, 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 the members of, you know, the society, all members of society. Um, so yeah, there's, there's in this image, there's this fantastic image of uh, Gandhi in, in a newspaper, and it's got him sitting down looking at some papers. He's like dressed in just a loincloth, and he's got those classical Gandhi, you know, moon-eyed glasses, um, and he just looks so saintly there, doesn't he? You can see his, <laughs> you can see his ribs. There's a bit of a yogi-esque element of him. Um, so it's a beautiful, beautiful image there. Um, yeah, uh, Mike. Yeah, if you if you look at this picture, you you see basically a sadhu, right? Mm. You don't see a, a warrior, and I mean his his whole philosophy of nonviolence is ahimsa, right? Is so powerful because um, it is it is the the moral high ground that he was always on and from where he was always making his actions. And when you see a picture like this, you, you look at him and you go like, oh my God, this guy, he's a master of himself. And, but it also shows that India has this kind of, um, like you, I'm, I'm guessing back in the day, a British person looked at this picture and thought, who is this? This peasant. To me, like some peasant. And Indian people looked at him and said, oh my God, he's a great yeah. master. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This makes such a difference, doesn't it? How would, how would someone see him now, Chris, just seeing that picture randomly? What would you see him if you're independent? You know, whenever, whenever I read it, Gandhi arrested on charge of sedition. Uh, and the word sedition isn't, isn't really used mm. much these days yet. Um, so I actually had a, I Googled it and it's conduct or speech inciting people to rebel against the authority or state or of a state or monarch. And in some ways, I think that people today would be a, a lot more receptive to Gandhi um, from my, my view and maybe sedition itself. Uh, there's, uh, you know, an educated population now that wants to be independent in free thinking. Whereas back then, like this, this made, like that word made the headline. And I think if that word, very word made the headline in that context, I think people would rebel against that. There's a, there's a more rebellious nature, I think. Uh, now that people are more decentralized and thinking for themselves, rather than versus, you know, 100 years ago when Gandhi was in India. But what did you think of his, that image of him, you know, with the papers, loincloth, bold ribs showing? Well, I, I think it's been said, really. You know, is he he's not in lotus posture there. I don't think. Uh, no, he's I think just one 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 foot, maybe half yeah. half half lotus. He, he holds himself as a man with grace and and somebody who's deeply caring and um, attentive. You know, you can kind of capture that just in that image, uh, in in how he's in how he's holding himself. Um, so yeah, every, everything you guys said, I was, I was, I, you know, I was going to jump in to say something, but you guys beat me to the punch on, on Gandhi. So Chris is sitting on the fence. He's not committing one way or looks, the other. He looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, he, looks, he looks very simple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we got him. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the independence movement that um, India 
um, kind of led and Gandhi led, I suppose, because we know from Gandhi's autobiography, which is called The Story of My Experiments with Truth. And um, I'd highly recommend that uh, for anyone who's interested in this, in this, um, in, in Gandhi. Um, so civil, the civil resist, the, um, the Ahimsa campaign was really a campaign that, you know, it, it, these political class kind of, um, kind of uh, promoted. And it was really about non-cooperation with using non-violence itself. We're going to talk about non-violence as a concept a bit later, but non-cooperation, Gandhi would have picked that up when he was in the UK. So when he was in the UK, so it's an interesting uh, analogy here because, uh, you know, India, sorry, UK or the English wanted Indians to be educated the Indian way, you know, the English way, sorry. And um, Gandhi was came to you know UCL and did, did law and uh, became a barrister here in the UK so he had a very British you know university and barrister education so he came to the UK and then he was very influenced by either you know the, the British Labour Party and the trade unions and the power that they had so when when people would go on you know when when workers would go on strike that meant that you know corporations would be you know on their on their knees and and um so he he really transformed he he used that and then transformed it into a religious thing, i.e. a religious and a moral thing about non nonviolence and applied it to a national problem or a national for the Indian cause, i.e. the independence movement. And because he embedded the spiritual aspect of it, and we'll talk about ahimsa nonviolence into it, he made this beautiful, beautiful um. Uh, mix of uh, non-cooperation with non-violence with this you know with this really altruistic goal and that goal for him in his life he actually made it uh, a, a self-transformation thing as well so he linked for example independence to his own liberation which is a completely you know, it's, it's a wild, wild thing to do, isn't it? To, to link something that's an international political chess game and link that to yourself. So for example, if, if and this happened often, England, England uh, you know, didn't fulfill a promise um, back in the day, Gandhi would say, what have I done wrong personally that led me to be experiencing this defeat in my external activities, i.e., India's pursuit of uh, India's pursuit of uh, independence. So yeah, I thought it was quite beautiful that uh, and ironic that uh, England wanted Indians to be educated in the British model, and they got that. And then when they were educated, they caused the end of the British Empire. <laughs> Mike. <clears throat> Uh, that's a fantastic point you made there. I, that is something I am just realizing now, the, the similarity between a union strike and non-cooperation to overthrow a government or an illegitimate regime. That is super interesting. <clears throat> Another point you made is that the Indian independence struggle was already going on for over 100 years, right? Yeah, that's right. And it, but it lacked the effectiveness that Gandhi brought in. Gandhi kind of gave the, gave the movement the right tools to succeed. And as long that people often think that non-violence is weak. And what the thing is with violence, they would not have won. They would not have gotten the independence because the British, they had 
power overwhelming troops military power everywhere so if there was an uprising somewhere they would have always been able to um put it to an end but this nationwide non-cooperation movement was something they were completely powerless against and there was nothing they could do and they had to admit defeat um after a while yeah yeah chris yeah i was going to say something similar maybe um reflecting on gandhi himself you know whenever i think about him i think of a, a man with incredible discipline and i suppose it really like if i think of any element that he had that i would look to uh to be you know key uh, among many is discipline because at the time like mike said you know the British army and, and the and the the aggression that they were able to deploy at any time to curtail any kind of rising, uh, which they did many times, would have incited a lot of hatred, a lot of violent tendencies, and it would have been easier for people to kind of take up arms in some way and, and have a violent uprising. But the discipline that you had to have to, to not go down that route and and to not take up arms or spill blood was incredible, like really, really incredible. And I think that's what can really inspire people to say, oh, okay, well, with discipline, you know, with faith and all the rest of it, we can, we can make it work. Um, like I, I watched the three, is it like a three hour movie on Gandhi, which is incredible. Um, and it did just strike me time and time again, that there would have been people at the time, you know, speaking in his ear, trying to maybe recruit him into different means and take up more of a radical approach. He could have easily went into that, but he had he had such discipline um, to, to not do it. So that that's just my two cents on 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 that. And um, yeah, uh, interesting. Interesting, you make that point about violence. Um, one thing that he did say was um, ahimsa should not in any way be linked or compared with um, cowardice or mm -hmm. being fearful and not acting through fear i.e being uh, docile etc because of fear of consequences he said rather than it's actually it's better in his definition it's better to pick up a weapon and fight than it is to run away from a battle through fear and cowardice which is it that means that you know there, there's so many layers to this um ahimsa concept that it's that is staggering isn't it yeah <laughs> mike I think Gandhi became quickly when he moved back from South Africa to India, he became a very beloved symbol in India and the British, they, they locked him up a few times and, but they never killed him because they knew they didn't want to create a martyr. And I feel like martyrdom would have created a, a violent conflict mm -hmm. that would have mobilized so many Indians that would have also probably led to the British um, losing ground in India. Yeah. He's a proverbial thorn in their sides, wasn't he? They can't, they can't get rid of him through conventional, <laughs> conventional means. Even prison, like um, he, yeah. he, putting him in prison actually empowered the yeah. people to fight harder, didn't it? It was just crazy. They had, they, there's no way of them winning. It was a crazy time, crazy time to be alive. <laughs> yeah mike yeah you're right like putting him in prison motivated them to do more action to get him out of prison right 
Yeah, and, and really uh, cemented his cause. So if he said from prison, writes a letter saying, look, um, um, you know, I'm in prison. You guys need to do this. You're, the country's weight is on your shoulders. I mean, do you need any more inspiration than your, you know, this guy can live in a palace, <laughs> being, you know, being a barrister in London, but he's wearing a loincloth like the poorest person in the country and living voluntarily putting himself in prison. <laughs> Yeah, Mike. Yeah, I mean, there's so many thoughts that come up about Gandhi because he he was not just uh, he. I mean, of course, the independence was his main cause, but also reforming uh, the caste system, for example, in India, was a very big thing for him in, inside. So he a lot of the people who who felt disenfranchised by the caste system followed him because they felt like he understands them, loves them, and gives them a future as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So with that uh, brief, not so brief, uh, <laughs> flurry into the independence movement, let's talk about its link with, um, with the, uh, what's it called, Mike? The civil rights movement in America. Civil rights movement in America, right. And one of the biggest proponents of that, it's not, he's not mentioned in this minute, but of course everyone links him prominently to the civil rights movement, is uh, Martin Luther King, let us share a small video with you before we proceed and we can discuss it. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Mike, tell us your reflections. Like when I hear this, it's still sometimes <clears throat> the tears come because it's just <clears throat> so like he didn't put any anger into his speech. He put facts in there and a legitimate desire of equality, right? That kind of everybody who heard this must have understood, must have heard, yes, I agree with this man. Even no matter what your race was, what your situation was. And he had a, a very powerful 
voice as well. And um, what he was referring to, of course, was he was standing in, in front of the, the statue of Abraham Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation during the Civil War to end slavery in the United States. And now, 100 years later, look at the situation. We're still not where we want to be. There's still no equality. There's still there's segregation in parts of the country. And his idea of a dream of an America where everyone is the same under the Constitution was so inspiring back then. And now, I mean, it is much better, but it's not finished. So this is, these are still inspiring words. And the fact that he did the same thing also through nonviolence, it makes him, makes him a very inspiring leader. Yeah, certainly. With especially you, I mean, he would have hoped that you know, in the year twenty twenty one, there wouldn't have been a need for a movement of the take the take the knee campaign, for example. But clearly, there still still is that need. There's still discrimination at various, you know, probably probably at every level of the society. Even though we've had a you know a black president of the United States of America, um, still it's still there, isn't it? Um, yeah, Mike. Yeah, the, the the problem seems to be that there there was this very long time where um, African Americans were disadvantaged, and then you remove a lot of those hurdles, and then you say, so now we're all equal. But the the economic outcomes they they don't change overnight, right? That those those hundreds of years they still happened, and so there is. There's talk in America to to make this process faster through means of I don't know. Um, everything's very controversial in America, of course. But yeah, let's let's see. Let's hope. Let's pray that America will be this country that has the same promise for everybody, no matter what race. Yes. So we see. Um, so let's let's draw this draw this arc perfect uh, that we started earlier. So Gandhi went to the UK, <laughs> became, you know, educated in, um, you know, strikes, um, and then came, went to India, civil disobedience became a thing that was linked with Ahimsa, then Martin Luther King, no, no, well, we know that from his writings, he was a big advocate, a big fan of the Gandhian approach to, uh, to you know, to, to bringing about change. Um, and he then led the led, led this movement, led the civil rights movement, and uh, it's uh, still going, isn't it? <laughs> still, uh, it's still the work is still not done, and perhaps uh, perhaps we can somehow <laughs> through our through our prayers and through our own transformation and you know spiritual involvement, we can also support that um, support that cause. Um, yeah, so let's talk about nonviolence then, <clears throat> in in that spiritual component. So I've got I've got a few quotes um, here from, and I've taken them from God Talks with Arjuna. So Mike, do you want to pick up the nonviolence card and read your first one? To condone defensive force in certain circumstances is not to demean the superiority of spiritual power over brute force. Even a tiger in the company of a yogi filled with the love of God becomes a pussycat. Patanjali says, 
in the presence of a man perfected in ahimsa, non-violence, enmity in any creature does not arise. Love your enemies is a central part of the teachings of Christ. This is not a sentimental dictum, nor a gesture merely to ennoble the giver, but expresses an important divine law. Chris, it reminded me of my favorite subject on the yugas. Mm -hmm. of, uh, in, the, in the higher yugas, you know, maybe this is a, an insight as to how mankind can you know, uh, live in symbiosis with uh, the animal kingdom. Um, where at the minute, I think it's quite a scary idea, you know, could you be walking with a tiger? Well, maybe not. Um, but if you perfected this technique, let's say of nonviolence, uh, you know, there, there may well be a future where that uh, those two worlds of the animal kingdom and, and humans can coincide and, and live in harmony. Hmm. Maybe. Um, hopefully one yeah. day we'll, one day we'll, uh, know that <laughs> gone yeah, Mike. Like six thousand years yeah <laughs> no as in hopefully we don't take that many years to become enlightened <laughs> and when we do then we will know all things of the past and the future mike i i love i love the point that he makes that what we said earlier right that the spiritual power is not weaker than brute force it is mm. superior and brute force is oftentimes not the way to victory and I feel that that um, that point, all the a lot of people that had success in the 20th century, like we could also mention Nelson Mandela, they all used Ahimsa and they were all successful, whereas a lot of other independence movements failed, right? Chris, part two. 15 verse two, the soul qualities that make man godlike non-injury one of the ten commandments in the bible is thou shalt not kill the prohibition refers to the wanton destruction of any gods any of god's creatures human beings animals plants but the universal economy is so arranged that man cannot live without killing vegetables for food eskimos cannot live without eating seal meat when it is an urgent matter of survival, a man is justified in saving his own for his own more valuable life by killing fish and animals, where which are lesser manifestations of divinity. Each day, millions of, of bacteria perish in man's body. No one can drink any liquid or breathe the air without destroying any, many microscopic forms of life. And sometimes such organisms respond in kind. This is um, is a good uh, good parallel we can draw because the purest veganism movement or the vegetarianism movement, the purest argument is that all life is created equal. Uh, your life is worth the same as that of a cow or insect. But here, um, Guruji unequivocally says that man is essentially the highest or the most evolved being but not in terms of like uh, darwinian evolution but more over the spiritual evolution in our ability to perceive god and to put spiritual principles into practice but if that spiritual man <laughs> needs to 
kill to survive, then he should value that opportunity for spiritual unfoldment in this life more valuable than that life of that seal or whatever that vegetable or whatever you may you may be killing um so i thought that was an interesting parallel mike uh i think i asked you that question many times before but um this this brings it up again so imagine you are like hungry and there's nothing uh, where you are except for a cow and you have you have a knife in your pocket <laughs> what are you gonna do <laughs> who, who are you asking yeah Priyank, Priyank. i'll ask chris <laughs> it would be rude of me to take your question uh, would i would i um i probably still wouldn't uh because i don't think i could <laughs> I would hope <laughs> that Guruji intervenes before I have to commit such an act. But I also, I was actually thinking about this recently, um, being crashed on a desert island or retiring to the Himalayas. I know it's easy to say it, but could you, you know, through your careers, just, just keep deepening your career, keep deepening your practice such that two things can happen, i.e., you get to the level of Theresa Neumann and, you know, uh, others that live on sunshine. Because, hey, hey, we've never really tried to do it. We know we've heard about these spiritual concepts, but we never really try them because in that area, in that space, you'd be forced to do it or you don't survive. Um, or secondly, just if you, if you, if you can meditate <laughs> to starvation, if you're going to die of starvation whilst you're meditating, then surely grace has to come in at that point. And I know it's easy for me to say, but I would try to practice or take use the opportunity to practice those two, one of those two uh, goals or to realize one of those two ambitions. Easy to say, but Mike. So you basically answered the question by saying you wouldn't kill the cow, you would instead meditate and hope that you would be yeah. able to be sustained by God's light. That's right. That's fair. Is, is it I, uh, too uh, too ambitious? It might be ambitious. I, I feel like my problem is I probably also couldn't kill the cow. I, mm. I like in me, I don't have this feeling that my life is more important than the cow, even though it says here in the Bhagavad Gita, but I'm, I'm not sure I could do it anyways. So, so um, why don't we say if it was a, um, there's a hundred cockroaches, all high in protein, <laughs> easily be easily sustained, you know. But and uh, that that island's got a thousand million cockroaches lurking around. What about uh, then, Mike? Or is that the same principle? <laughs> I mean, ask me, ask me again when I'm really, really hungry. <laughs> Chris, same question with the cows first and then the cockroaches second. You just ask the man that's just after having his breakfast versus the man that hasn't eaten since breakfast. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I actually had um, a struggle with this concept at, at the higher end of what if, um, you know, we were faced with a great evil on, on the planet where, um, you know, uh, another Nazi situation or something, God, God forbid, was was there you know would you take up arms to defend what you would see as um a better path 
for the benefit of mankind. And I actually talked about this with a, uh, you know, a SRF devotee. And she said, actually, this is, this is, you, you would uh, condone it you, you, as a spiritual act um, because it is for the better betterment of mankind and, and spiritual um, enlightenment. I struggled a lot with that concept. I really said to myself, well, you know, how could, you know, not how could you know, but if you were wrong, that's quite a heavy price to pay. You would have to be absolutely sure, 100% that said that you were right. But um, I suppose this is this is something that people have had to deal with in the past, uh, in different wars gone by. But that's my thinking on it. Beyond cockroaches, could you take a human life if it was to defend a nation or family or something? It's a, a great, great concept. So. I think Guruji Guruji said. Um, talked about patriotism and one's love for his country and he even said if they needed me to pick up an arm and to fight for the country i would mm. um yeah. so what is a righteous what is a righteous uh, if it is or isn't a righteous battle um you could only use your own judgment um you know but beyond that it's down to god isn't it but if if you're fulfilling your duty whichever side of the battle you're on then what more can god ask of you yeah anyway mike yeah i wanted to continue down that road do you think i should first read the next section because it kind of goes that yeah direction? yeah okay um in the mahabharata ahimsa is referred to as a virtue entire sakalo dharma if righteousness be thus the criterion neglect of action to uphold god's eternal laws of righteousness may be the cause of more harm than any non-malicious injury resulting from an act of, of obstructing evil. Method and motive are often decisive elements on the balanced scale of divine justice. During a visit to the ashram of Mahatma Gandhi in 1935, I asked the prophet of nonviolence for his definition of ahimsa. He replied, the avoidance of harm to any living creature in thought or deed. A man of nonviolence neither willfully gives nor wishes. Wishes um, ill harm to. Ill harm. Um, yeah, to, uh, to other creatures. Yeah. So is, this is a good one because um, in the Mahabharata, we have two opposing armies. So in the Mahabharata, we have the Pandavas and the Kauravas. And um, Kauravas are headed by essentially a material or an evil Duryodhana. Um, mm. And Duryodhana is symbolic as well. You can read about that. Their name is symbolic as well. And you can read about the symbology in God Talks Arjuna. But he had, you know, an army of 100,000 men. Now he was battling against, essentially he was battling against Krishna. So they knew, you know, every, virtually all, everyone at that time accepted Krishna was God incarnation, incarnated in, in that, um, you know, in, in that thing and in that life. But they were on the side that was opposing Krishna. And Krishna had actually made it that way. So Krishna, for example, um, Duryodhan, Duryodhan, he offered Duryodhan two things. He, he said, either you can take me on your side and I'll be your personal counsel as Arjuna was, or you can take my entire army, i.e. the Yadavas, the other, you know, 
all of his kings, etc., um, and kingdoms that that followed him. And Duryodhana, being who he is, didn't realize the you know the that the god can never lose. You know, any side that Krishna is on can never be defeated. He picked the army because he thought, who you know, if I've got an infinite army, what can I? There's no way I can lose. Now, everyone in his army, now now in Duryodhana's army. Now, would you say, just because they're fighting against Krishna and they're fighting on the side of Duryodhana means that they would then be committing an unrighteous or, you know, their, 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 their violence isn't justified. Krishna actually, Krishna actually gave the army to the evil side. They still had to fight. <laughs> and in fact, it even goes deeper and says that, um, uh, you know, for a warrior, there's no greater spiritual opportunity than a battle, i.e. a war. And I know that's symbolic as well. And it also, Krishna also says that any, any person, you know, that pretty much is slayed by my hand um, is liberated, basically. I've, I've ended there. That's their last birth. So if, for example, one of those uh, people in the army decided, no, no, I can't battle against Krishna, then he's going to be reborn. He's back in the. <laughs> he's going to be back in this body if he doesn't get liberated. So um, I hope that a little bit answers your question, Chris. I know you took it to the extreme, i.e., Nazism, but um, <laughs> the uh, the example that uh, we have in uh, with uh, Mahabharata is, uh, is, I think, is a clear one. Mike, the Mahabharata is like this this um, amazing conflict, right? Where you really have the like symbolic, the good tendency, uh, the good tendencies against the bad tendencies and all the symbolism in there. And yet I love how Arjuna and Krishna, they have to talk a long time before Arjuna is ready to fight, right? Because mm -hmm. his first instinct is, I don't want to fight my brothers. I, I don't want to kill um, anybody. And he's essentially, he wants, he he thinks a, a bit like us right like he he would much rather solve this in a non-violent way right and he yes. also thinks is it worth it killing my brothers um and then and then krishna has to convince him like for pages and pages right on the of this war because and he says because it is a just war right because it's not it's not a war of spite it's not like um something that is um, just for ego, it is a war that needs to be won in order for the order to be restored. And this is like, and and like you said, I, I mean, if you work, if you fight on the side of the of the gurus and um, and you get slain by Krishna and get liberated, <laughs> fantastic. I, I turn up for that. Yeah. One thing um, that we should add, um, uh, God in God talks with Arjuna, Guruji says that. Um, Veda Vyas, who is the author of, um, of the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata, he, um, he said he, he interwove an actual battle, i.e. the one in Kurukshetra, the one with, between the Pandavas and the Kauravas, with a metaphysical battle, i.e. one that each one of us has with us every day of our lives and through our whole life. Um, so, for example, the metaphysical battle in that is that my past tendencies... You know, so Duryodhana Bhishma represents ego. Um, so he had to, Arjuna didn't want to kill Bhishma because like, Bhishma is his grandfather. And the grandfather of all your 
evils is the ego consciousness and Arjuna wasn't only seeing a relative he was seeing his past tendencies is the metaphysical element so he doesn't want to slay you know habits that have taken him to where he is because he this is all he knows he isn't at that state of a realized master as Krishna is so the, the, meta, the metaphysical aspect of what he doesn't want to be rid of and but Krishna obviously urges him to uh, to be rid of those things for his for the for the greater good of not of just Kurukshetra but his own spiritual unfoldment unfoldment and uh, liberation uh, Chris it, it, these stories are, are epic uh, but if I was to look to a, a less epic example there is a great example of, of this in the lessons which I'll, I'll not go into detail, but uh, the gist of the story is that there's a man who is a butcher uh, in a marketplace and um, he's spiritually enlightened. And he was asked, you know, what, why are you a butcher? Um, the, the response was basically, well, you know, somebody will do it. So I'm going to do it with love uh, in, in my heart, nonviolence really in, in my heart. And I thought that that was a really striking message that you know, society in certain times will have the needs for, you know, or demands for these sort of things. They're not going to go away like overnight. Um, and somebody like that can step in in that position and, and have their mind on God uh, and do the action. And that's what it sort of says there. It's method and motive are often decisive elements on the balance scale of divine justice. So that's what it made me think of that. Um, you know, if you can put your mind on God and still act in the world, what are, are you producing karma? You know, how, how, how does that work? Um, exactly. Uh, so it, yeah, in, in really interesting point, but just to kind of take it on to a more practical example <laughs> of my you know, everyday uh, living. Yeah, sure. Um, Chris, do you want to read the last? Sure. Uh, the Lord is... Anissa, the uh, correct me if I, I, I butchered that uh, word. Ahimsa, the Lord is Ahimsa. ahimsa. Oh, sorry, Ahimsa, I thought I did. The Lord is Ahimsa, the shelter from all harm, in whom there is no intent to cause pain or injury to any human being. Harm is the result of the misuse of free choice to identify oneself with the illusions of duality. He is truth the singular reality, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss, blissful blessedness behind all cosmic appearances. In him, there is no wrath, no desire contradicted in his desireless self. The working of his laws are not punishments, but proper, uh, promptings of his love indeed so that is again from all of those are from god talks with arjuna um uh do you want to have chris do you have a reflection on that before we move on uh I, well I, I think um really it sort of backs up what i was saying maybe in in, in the previous minute to some degree um, the, the singularity, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new, blessed, blissful, behind all cosmic appear appearances. Um, the, the shadow and light of, of um, duality of Maya, I was thinking that uh, everything is a play. 
you know, it reminds me of Yogananda talking about his vision of it was it World War Two or World War One when he was crying, you know, what why is this happening? And the, the response was, you know, it, it, these are just scenes, uh, you know, in, in a movie. So um, there is a lightheartedness to it, uh, to the whole play, and not to take it too seriously in some sense as well. So that it kind of springs thoughts to my mind. Um, in him, there is no wrath, no desire. Uh, and this is, this is all but a play for us to experience uh, in the vastness of Maya. Yep. Ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss. Sat, Chit, Ananda, of course. <laughs> so we have um, now, we have a Guruji, scene of Guruji lecturing at Harvard. Um, and it all looks very nice. He's got his robes. And there's a um, kind of a summary. It says like 1923, um, Harvard Crimson, Cambridge Mass. Gandhi held as a second Christ by all India say Swami Yogananda. And then it says, people in India, truly happy because truly spiritual. Um, pretty easy question, I'm sure, for you guys to answer. But does spiritual spirituality, does it equate to happiness? Like straight away, is there a direct correlation, Mike? Pretty easy answer. I mean, yes, I think. A correlation doesn't mean it's a it's it's directly connected. It's like you're more likely to be happy if you're spiritual. I would say 100% yes, especially if you mold your life to the image of a great guru like Yogananda. I feel like you will be a lot more happy, definitely. Chris? Yes, but it depends. Uh, I would say it depends on the individual's you know, past life and karma, how much of a, an easy time, let's say, they might get to the perfection of the spiritual practice. So it, it depends on, as Mike said, maybe the teacher um, and, your, and your practice, spirituality, um, a drop of it might give you temporary happiness. But, uh, and of course, the goal is permanent happiness, blissful states. Uh, so yes, but it needs... It needs a lot of work uh, as well to maintain it, uh, to, to get to the absolute um, uh, utopia version of uh, what it means to be spiritual. Mike? I want to talk about the title that it says there, right? Like that you read at the beginning, Gandhi held a second Christ by all India, says Swami Yogananda. And this, is, this means something, right? So this shows you that there was... India was seen as part of the British Empire back then. That was like their breadbasket, or where, where a lot of the raw materials came from. Mm. And, and, and here comes this um, Swami from India, who is a patri patriot of India, you know? And I feel like the, even now, um, the idea that India was once this great country, that this great economy, this great... Um, power in the world is, is forgotten, right? And, and now um, he, he's just basically trying to uh, bring to attention the vastness and the greatness of India. And I love that, that he's um, Indian and he loves his country. He loves India and he, wherever he goes, he even like this beautiful poem that he wrote about India is that he, that he cited on his last day. I mean, 
I, I, I love that he loves his country so much that he um, puts it out there when he can. And the second thing is, of course, Gandhi held a second Christ is also <laughs> a big message because I, I would assume if people read newspapers in that time, they would probably think Gandhi is this terrorist guy from, <laughs> from India, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, um, Western Western media would, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Indian, media. Indian yeah. newspapers, Indians to Indian newspapers reading, then they might get that. Mm. Chris? I think it's a good comparison, actually, you know, India and America, it says here, um, you know, his aim is to conquer India through ideals and lack of rich re religious understanding in America, her undoing. Um, and then it says people in India truly happy because truly spiritual. Um, and when, when I thought about it, I suppose you might say that people maybe had less in India, but by correlation, they might have attributed more value to the spiritual side versus the material side, you know, when, when you look at America. And you might see people more happy because they have maybe less because they live a more simple life versus the complex, you know, life that people live in America. And we've talked about it in previous minutes that people are quite unhappy um, and more things don't mean more happiness. So uh, materialism versus spiritualism, simplicity, happiness, yeah. There's a practical element to that as well. Yeah, Mike? I, I want to say something controversial. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know this UN Happiness Index. Have you, have you ever followed that? There's a list of countries and it shows you the happiest to the unhappiest. And Scandinavia is the highest, isn't it? I think Finland is the highest. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been to Finland, nothing against Finland, but <laughs> the, the happiness doesn't strike you as the first thing there when you come um the country also has like a high suicide rate for example and i i feel like they measure happiness in you should be happy because you got all those things right i don't feel like they measure happiness in the way that mm. are you actually happy right and i feel like it is totally a very different data point to measure because you rely on what people tell you right so you, you cannot go with a, some kind of tricorder and say, oh, yeah, he's happy. <laughs> <laughs> Happiness meter. <laughs> yeah, just to add on to that, is it happiness or pleasure? You know, are people saying, oh, you know, I'm happy because I've got this great car and a house and all these things that, that has some kind of hierarchical pleasure kind of sense tacked tack onto it. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think Norway's um, Norway's got the most Teslas per, you know, per capita across really? across any country, I believe. <laughs> like every like I don't know, something like every fifth person has a Tesla or something crazy. <laughs> every fifth household, something crazy. But certainly when I went there, I can say that 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 was that was true. There were so many Teslas. It was unreal. And the sovereign wealth, sovereign <laughs> sovereign wealth fund is the doing well in, in Norway. Um, but about that, Mike, um, if I was to provide some better metrics for happiness, would I, I'd put, for example, uh, the number of times I've, for example, been frustrated, um, number of times that I've lost my temper, perhaps in a day, uh, number of times that I've been, you know, sad, miserable, 
um, or envious, jealous, anything that um, takes you away. So for example, if you're just in a state of equipoise, I'd put that in a happiness category. But if you're anywhere away from that through whatever reason, for example, if you're frustrated at work or frustrated with your manager or your wife or your husband or your ch children, etc., then that would take you away from the state of equipoise. But equally, I would say, if you were elated at getting a new Tesla, then again, I think that would actually be a cause and a consequence of unhappiness because even though it may be a temporary fleeting joy that you had, you know, out of pride, you've suddenly got a Tesla and you're suddenly happy as opposed to the Peugeot that you may have been driving beforehand. <laughs> nothing, nothing against Peugeots. Nobody in America knows what a Peugeot is. Do they know what a Citroen is or a Renault? They must know Renault, come on. <laughs> Like Fiat, they know Fiat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anything that's uh, you know working class car, then uh, then then you get my picture. But yeah, I think you you get what I'm saying. Like these these are quite deep truths. Um, like misery and uh, elation are essentially two sides of the same coin. And your goal, as Arjuna tells, as Krishna tells Arjuna, is to be in the happy middle ground, like the unwavering lamp in a windless place. Yeah, Mike? Yeah, I think you made two really good points there. I feel like the one being that it's actually our circumstances only have a small proportion of our, um, responsibility for our happiness. I would say maybe 10 to 20 percent. Um, and, and yet um, there is a tendency of everybody to blame it all on that, right? But really being happy is a lot of it is us ourselves wanting to be happy and uh, working towards being happy, making the right choices to be happy. And the second thing that you said about measuring the, the happiness, like when, when you have like a, a moment of strong emotion, a moment of, of, um, that, of disturbance or something, I feel like this is going to be a whole science in, in the new age where we kind of try to figure out and spirituality will definitely play a big role in this in my opinion that all we want is everybody to be as happy as possible and as emotionally sane and healthy as possible and as spiritual as possible i think yoganan talk uh, talks about um, happiness in physical form right so to be physically uh, healthy uh, and as well as wealth is like you said you know having some form of wealth to be able to maintain your life but he, he said if you don't have your health you, you kind of lose your ability to be happy in many respects uh, so I think that for me is is one that's really critical like if you don't have a sound body I think your mind and you know your emotions suffer as a result and very difficult to be happy in in those modes and it takes a lot of sadna and discipline to to get through those moments of um, physical discomfort um, and if you look at uh, a lot of the world maybe um, in the us mike you might say it more you know the obesity and things like that you know it, it might then be a root of a lot of unhappiness in the, in the world um, so yeah follow yogananda's teachings on, on that one yeah. and if i drove a peugeot I, 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 yeah, my happiness would go way way 
We have we have nothing against French cars on this podcast, of course, <laughs> but we acknowledge that some cars are more superior than others. <laughs> Other cars are a little. <laughs> um, I personally like Japanese cars, but uh, I think that's only because Japan is closer to India than nice. than Germany. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> persons of interest. This is the last scene, which is shown so there's a lo lovely video of guruji enjoying a banquet with some it would appear some dignitaries and i believe it is so i believe it's um the ambassador of india so i, I found a little snippet of this meal actually from writings from dr lewis which says i feel guruji said i feel this is the happiest day i've had because that had been accomplished and so they had a little luncheon at, at the India house and the ambassador was there and the consul general of Asia and several others, Mr. Sen and several other members from the Indian embassy. And we had a nice luncheon. So this is like a diary entry from Dr. Lewis. So um, this would actually be possibly just one day before Guruji's Mahasamadhi. And you can see from the video of him, it is quite similar. He's, his appearance is quite similar to that picture in, in The Last Smile, you know, pro pro possibly one of, one of three of the most famous pictures of Guruji. The other one is the one at Lake Shrine dedication, I believe. And the other one is the standard pose, which is probably the most um, iconic image of, of Guruji. So yeah, that's that's a bit about that image. And we, we, we won't talk about the Mahasamadhi scene that's uh, that's for a later later episode uh, mike so when he says india house is that india hall at hollywood temple do you know that i don't know don't know um that's all i read um but i, I put, i'll put a link to that talk on our, on our description um it's uh, quite a, dr lewis um, has a big diary entry for for guruji in the last few days and this was this was part of it mm -hmm um that's pretty much the whole minute um and unless anyone has any more i think that was a very beautifully captured minute and there was a lot there we unpacked quite a lot of, lot of things that you can easily gloss over certainly if you aren't too aware of indian history or american civil rights movement and perhaps their link so there's a lot of you know a lot of a lot of rich content in there that guruji Guruji picked up upon through his um, through his life and writings and you know where he actually lectured in Harvard and other places and promoted various things also in his articles for the East West magazine uh, where you'll see lots of um, lots of entries about you know his discussions of you know on things like racism and discrimination and Indian independence and the British Empire and all those glorious and grand subjects that uh, academics and scholars like to mull over their whole lives. <laughs> Chris? Yeah, I think this minute um, did a good job at giving the, uh, the viewer a good context of what it was like at the time and brings in nice elements that are tied into Guruji's life. Um, you know, Sonny, uh, Brennan Sonny saying anyone affiliated with India, especially somebody affiliated with Mahatma Gandhi was a person of interest. How that, I mean, Yogananda is one of those people. It, it teased it up very nicely as to what we're going to talk about in the next uh, couple of minutes, really, about the, 
paranoia that was there at the time in the United States, but in the Western world. And, um, you know, Philip Goldberg there says, you know, why are people drawn to this heathen teacher and what goes on behind closed doors? So it, do, it does, um, they do a good job at fitting, you know, a lot of context and information in that short, short minute. So thumbs up to the uh, producers on that one. Yeah, they took a bit of liberty because they kind of did to like, say, 19... 45 plus minus 20 years so they took a bit of liberty with narratives but i think it was um, it was fine um that's um pretty much everything so uh thank you for joining us thank you for all your comments and uh, lovely feedback and we hope to see you next time thanks everyone jay guru thank you everyone jay ma